Good evening. The right to abortion is on the line in Supreme Court arguments that challenge the half-century Roe v. Wade decision. Omicron comes to the United States. More threats against Representative Ilhan Omar and Mayor de Blasio touts his overdose prevention initiative. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, December 1st, 2021. Today is World AIDS Day, commemorating 36 million people, including 700,000 Americans who've died of the disease, first discovered among gay men in the 1980s, barely understood without cure or treatment. AIDS galvanized the world and set off opening salvos in the United States of what's come to be known as the culture wars still roiling America. With the somber commemoration as a backdrop, President Joe Biden unveiled his new HIV AIDS strategy to end the more than 40-year-old epidemic, calling for a renewed focus on vulnerable Americans, including gay and bisexual black and Latino men, who his administration says are too often stigmatized, even as they are disproportionately affected. And a generation endured the brunt, the brunt of this epidemic, losing friends, loved ones, family members, partners instead of being seen and being recognized. And I can recall, if you excuse the point of personal privilege, being, I think, in this very room, when a senator who, he's deceased now, so I don't want to mention his name because he can't defend himself, but standing up and saying, along with another guy named Jerry Falwell, this is God's punishment, paraphrasing it. God's punishment, finally. Think how much has changed. I mean, back in those days, the, the willingness of other members of the Senate and the House to stand up and take him on was Nancy was there. Many of you were there, but it wasn't a universal thing. It wasn't a universal thing. But you all demanded, demanded to be treated with dignity and with equity. Those voices, those stories are invaluable as we recommit ourselves to finishing the fight that we are going to make these individuals living with AIDS and are helping them drive and inform our efforts at every step of the way because we're going to finish this fight. And that is President Biden earlier today launching his new initiative to end AIDS and HIV in our lifetime. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, new HIV infections in the United States fell about 8% from 2015 to 2019, but black and Latino communities, particularly gay and bisexual men within those groups, continue to be disproportionately affected. African-Americans make up about 13% of the U.S. population, but accounted for more than 40% of new infections. The Latino population accounted for nearly 25% of new infections, but makes up about 18.5% of the U.S. population. Disparities also persist among women. Black women's HIV infection rate is 11 times that of white women and four times that of Latino women. A giant red ribbon, a symbol of support for people living with HIV, was displayed on the north portico of the White House to mark today, World AIDS Day. The two-story ribbon display has become an annual tradition at the White House since 2007. And in the biggest challenge to abortion rights in decades, the Supreme Court's conservative majority today signaled they would allow states to ban abortion much earlier in pregnancy and may even overturn the nationwide right that has existed for nearly 50 years. Hundreds representing both sides of the acrimonious debate protested outside the court. The decision expected by next summer could decide the fate of the court's historic 1973 Roe v. Wade decision legalizing abortion throughout the United States and its 1990 
1992 ruling in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which reaffirmed Roe. Justice Brett Kavanaugh, a Trump appointee, asked whether the court would be better off withdrawing completely from the abortion issue and letting states decide. He compared abortion to civil rights, as he asked Attorney Julia Rickleman of the Center for Reproductive Rights if the president of Roe should also be overturned. It turns out if the court in those cases had adhered to precedent in Brown v. Board, adhered to Plessy, the country would be a much different place. I assume you agree with most, if not all, the cases I listed there that uh, the prior precedents are seriously wrong, if that. Why then doesn't the history of this court's practice with respect to those cases tell us that the right answer is actually to return to the position of neutrality and not stick with those precedents in the same way that all those other cases didn't? Because the the view that a previous precedent is wrong, Your Honor, has never been enough for this court to overrule, and it certainly shouldn't be enough here when there's 50 years of precedent. Instead, the court has required something else, a special justification, and the state doesn't come forward with any special justification. It makes the same exact arguments the court already considered and rejected in its stare decisis analysis in Casey, and in fact, there is nothing different. There is no less need today than 30 years ago or 50 years ago for women to be able to make this fundamental decision for themselves about their bodies, lives, and health. And uh, that was Kavanaugh, the justice, questioning Attorney Julia Rickleman of the Center for Reproductive Rights. Justice Sonia Sotomayor asked if the court would survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts. And liberal justice Elena Kagan asked Mississippi Solicitor General Scott Stewart if reversing 50 years of law in a single decision may be going too far. The rationale behind those cases has something to do with the autonomy and the freedom and the dignity of women to pursue their lives as they wish, to protect their bodily integrity to make the decisions that are most fundamental to the course of their lives. And and always in those cases, there was an understanding that there were important interests on the other side. Some people think those decisions made the right balance, and some people thought they made the wrong balance. But in the end, we are in the same exact place as we were then, except that we're not because there's been 50 years of water under the bridge, 50 years of decisions saying that this is part of our law, that this is part of the fabric of women's existence in this country, and that that places us in an entirely different situation. The fact that so much time has passed, let's say nothing had changed, that's not a point in Rowan Casey's favor. They have no basis in the Constitution. They, they adopt a right that purposefully leads to the termination of now millions of human lives. The, if nothing had changed, they'd be just as bad as they were 30 years ago, 50 years ago. And now we just have decades of damage. But if the matters return to the people, the people can deal with it. They can work. They can compromise and reach different solutions. But if we don't do that, we're just going to have all this sort of damage. And at some point, it's appropriate for the court to say enough, as it has in some of its the great overrulings in Brown and in other cases where it said this is just enough. 
and that was uh, Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan. Marjorie Cohen is Professor Emerita at the Thomas Jefferson School of Law and the former president of the National Lawyers Guild. She says the days of Roe v. Wade are coming to an end and the battle for choice will switch to state legislators. It's not clear whether they are going to squarely overrule Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey or what I refer to as death of abortion by a thousand cuts, which would uphold the Mississippi law, allow states to outlaw abortion after 15 weeks, which would really open the floodgates and essentially overrule the guts of Roe and Casey. Thomas, Alito, and Kavanaugh look like they're poised to overrule Roe v. Wade and Casey. Roberts looks like he's not going to overrule it, but he is going to uphold the Mississippi law. Uh, Gorsuch and Barrett are not so clear. Um, Barrett talked about safe haven laws where the woman has the baby and can give up the baby at a certain safe place, and she kept harping on safe haven laws, which indicates that she may be poised also to overrule uh, Rowan Casey. So that leaves Gorsuch as the swing. Um, I don't think there's any question that Gorsuch would uphold the Mississippi law because he talked about uh, eliminating the viability requirement. Um, right now, Roe v. Wade said that states can't ban abortion before for viability. That's when the fetus can survive outside the womb around 24 weeks of pregnancy. In Casey, they upheld the essential holding of Roe, but uh, came up with an undue burden test. In other words, states can restrict abortion at all stages of pregnancy, even the first trimester, as long as the restriction doesn't impose an undue burden or a substantial obstacle on the right to obtain a pre-viability abortion. Now, Mississippi is arguing that this undue burden standard is unworkable, it's not in the Constitution. Leave it to the people. Let the let the states decide. Um, and uh, the, um, the clinic, uh, the, the Mississippi Clinic, the Jackson Clinic, um, is saying this is in the Constitution. The right to abortion is in the liberty interest of the 14th Amendment due process. You know, the state can't deny someone life, liberty, or uh, property without due process of law. And it's a fundamental right, that abortion is a fundamental right, so it shouldn't be left up to the state legislators. Um, so it's, it's unclear, I think, at a minimum, we're looking at upholding the Mississippi law, which means that states will now uh, come on board and outlaw abortion after 15 weeks, six weeks. They'll, they'll test uh, their, their new restrictions. Um, Sotomayor, Breyer, and Kagan, the liberals, say that the legitimacy of the court is at stake. Um, and uh, Sotomayor asked whether the court could survive the stench of overruling Roe and Casey. Sotomayor um, said that uh, it looks like contraception, the right to contraception, the right to same-sex marriage, the right to homosexual conduct are all on the chopping block uh, because they're not specifically in the Constitution either. So if the court um, 
overrules Roe v. Wade and, and Casey and says that, uh, you know, there's no constitutional right to an abortion, um, that is going to, it's going to put a lot of other rights in jeopardy. And Sotomayor said, how is this anything other than religion? There's still a debate about when life begins. And the clinic came, came back and said, well, viability, the fetus can be viable outside the mother's body, is objectively verifiable. There's nothing mushy about it. And then Mississippi was arguing, well, you know, they can always use birth control, and birth control is more advanced now than it was 30 years ago when Casey was decided. But Sotomayor said that 10% of contraception fails, and women get pregnant, and many women, especially young women, can't get an abortion before 15 weeks. This is very, very disturbing either way, and I can see if the majority of the right-wingers do not squarely overrule Roe and Casey, they could say that the state has an interest in protecting unborn life and women's health and the medical profession's integrity, and that's compelling at 15 weeks, and leave for another day the question of what standard applies in the absence of a viability standard. The second alternative to squarely overruling Roe and Casey is that they could actually dilute the undue burden standard from Casey to allow outright bans on abortion before viability as long as they don't impose a substantial obstacle to a significant number of women seeking abortion. So either way, the right to abortion is going to be eliminated or severely, severely restricted. Marjorie Cohen, who is, uh, spoke with WBAI earlier today, she's Professor Emirata at the Thomas Jefferson School of Law and the former president of the National Lawyers Guild. If the court issues its decision in late June, it'll be a little more than four months before next year's congressional elections and could become a campaign season rallying cry. And in more national news, a 15-year-old boy was charged with murder and terrorism for shooting a shooting that killed four fellow students and injured others at a Michigan high school. No motive was offered by Oakland County authorities a day after violence at Oxford High School, roughly 30 miles north of Detroit. But prosecutor Karen McDonald says the shooting was premeditated based on what she said was a mountain of digital evidence collected by police. Reportedly, his parents had a school meeting over the child whose name is Ethan Crumbly. I'm sure we'll be hearing his name, his behavior just hours before the shootings. Sheriff Mike Bouchard says the reason for the meeting was behavior in the classroom that was concerning. But he added there was no evidence the boy was planning to kill anyone. We're hearing all kinds of rumors about warning signs. I can tell you that uh, we have a, a school a liaison deputy that's assigned to the high school. I'm not aware of, and we are not aware of any warnings. If there were, I can tell you we're very closely with Tim Thurl and the superintendent and the principal at the school. If there were, I got to believe they would have told us. There's all kinds of stuff out on social media. Please don't believe everything you hear and see on social media. I've seen one screenshot of something about allegedly the shooter warning people not to come to school today, but that was somebody that got it from somebody. So please be careful with that information. There's a lot of, you know, because of social media, there's a lot of stuff out there. I can't confirm whether it's true or not. Ultimately, we will get to the bottom of this. We're executing a search warrant at the suspect's house. As I said, he's not cooperating with us at this point so in time. 
Prosecutors said in court that Crumbly entered a bathroom with a backpack and came out holding a semi-automatic handgun, firing at students while moving down the hallway. The four students who were killed were identified as 16-year-old Tate Meyer, 14-year-old Hannah St. Juliana, 17-year-old Madison Baldwin, and 17-year-old Justin Schilling. And the United States recorded its first confirmed case of the Omicron variant today in a vaccinated traveler who returned to California after a trip to South Africa. As scientists around the world race to establish whether the new mutant version of the coronavirus is more dangerous than previous ones, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the United States' top infectious disease expert, announced the finding at the White House. The California and San Francisco Departments of Public Health and the CDC have confirmed that a recent case of COVID-19 among an individual in California was caused by the Omicron variant. Genomic sequencing was conducted at the University of California at San Francisco, and the sequence was confirmed at the CDC as being consistent with the Omicron variant. And that is today's uh, statement by Dr. Anthony Fauci. California's officials say the person had two doses of the Moderna vaccine and wasn't yet due for a booster shot. They added that he is improving. At least 23 other countries have reported Omicron infections since South African authorities first identified the variant a week ago. Also today, the World Health Organization warned that banning travel is becoming counterproductive and complicating the sharing of lab samples from South Africa that could help scientists understand the new variant. WHO Director Dr. Tedros Adnam. The travel bans will not prevent the international spread of Omicron and they place a heavy burden on lives and livelihoods. WHO continues to call on all countries to optimize public health and social measures and ensure that high-risk and vulnerable individuals in all countries are fully vaccinated immediately. Globally, we have a toxic mix of low vaccine coverage and very low testing a recipe for breeding and amplifying variants. That's WHO Director Hedros Adnam. Meanwhile, many countries uh, are dealing with a surge in infections and hospitalizations. Despite a relatively high vaccination rate in Europe, 67% 67 of the European Union's population has been vaccinated. The disease has been increasing its uh, hospitalizations and cases uh, by uh, geometrically as we speak. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Democratic Minnesota Representative Ilan Omar yesterday played a harrowing death threat recently left for her by voicemail while imploring House Republican leaders to do more to tamp down anti-Muslim hatred in their ranks and hold those who perpetuated accountable. Ilan Omar has been battling the threats since she was elected, but especially after a dust-up over a racist joke told by Colorado Republican Laura Boebert. The next clip contains those harrowing threats. Tune back in 90 seconds if you find that disturbing. I myself have reported hundreds of threats on my life, often triggered by Republican attacks on my faith. And this week, once again, we saw another increase. I'm going to play you a voicemail that we received hours after I got off the phone with Representative Boebert after she posted her video. 
For those of you who did not hear it very well, let me read you what the voicemail says. We see you, sand and word bitch. We know what you are up to. You are all about taking over our country. Don't worry. There is plenty that would love the opportunity to take you off the face of this effing earth. Come get it. Our jihadist. We know what you are. You are effing traitor and you will not live any longer. Condemning this should not be a partisan issue. This is about our basic humanity and fundamental rights of religious freedom enshrined in our Constitution. And that was Representative Ilan Omar yesterday talking about the uh, death threats she's been receiving. Bobert was a guest on, on Fox News host Laura Ingram's show last night where she responded that she was just representing her constituents. I fully believe that that man needs to be found by Capitol Police and held fully accountable, just like the men who have called with death threats against my family, against my staff, my restaurant, all in the past few days. They need to be found and held accountable. I certainly do not criticize anyone's religion or faith, and that is exactly why I released my statement to the Muslim com Congressman. community. And uh, that was... Uh Something from Laura Ingram's show, Ilan uh, Omar went on to describe how Georgia Republican and QAnon supporter Marjorie Taylor Greene demanded she use a Bible to swear her oath after being elected. We have Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Greene, now a member of Congress, who came to my office in 2019, harassed my, my staff, demanding that my colleague Rashida Tlaib and I retake our oath of office on a Christian Bible. That says a lot about somebody who says she believes in the Constitution because she obviously hasn't read it. And that was Ilan Omar. Bobert initially took steps to ease the situation last week, apologizing to anyone in the Muslim community I offended, but not directly to Omar. But after declining to apologize directly to Omar during a tense phone call Monday, which Omar abruptly ended, Bobert again went on the attack. Bobert said in an Instagram video she's rejecting an apology and hanging up on someone uh, is part of cancel culture 101 and a pillar of the Democratic Party. So far, uh, House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy is taking Boebert's side. When asked yesterday what he would do if Democrats tried to censure Boebert, McCarthy said after she apologized personally and publicly, I'd vote against it. And the city, New York City, we're back here in the city. The city commemorated the 33rd World AIDS Day with events across the five boroughs, including candlelight vigils in Brooklyn and on Staten Island. Healthcare workers, patients and community members gathered Wednesday morning for a vigil at New York City Health and Hospitals, Woodhull and Bedford-Stuyvesant, marking four decades since the first cases of AIDS were reported in the United States. The hospital became the first New York City Health and Hospitals facility to be designated an AIDS center in September 1993. Health and Hospitals said that in a press conference today, in a press release today in Manhattan. The American Run for the End of AIDS and GHGMHC were scheduled in the evening to hold a candlelight vigil at the AIDS Memorial in Greenwich Village. 
And officials in New York City say the first government-approved supervised drug injection sites in the nation began offering services to people with addiction yesterday. The program baked Backed by Mayor Bill de Blasio as part of the city's harm reduction strategy designed to reduce an unprecedented surge of overdose deaths. According to city officials, more than 2,000 people in New York City died from fatal overdoses in 2020. The safe drug consumption sites will be operated at sites that also offer clean needles and other services. Harm reduction is a philosophy of treatment where the safety and health of drug users is primary over the moral or legal issues. The idea is to help drug users stay alive. The mayor touted his plan earlier today. Overdose prevention centers have existed for almost 30 years. Tens of thousands of people dealing with addiction challenges have turned to overdose prevention centers. And over 30 years, there hasn't been a single death, not one, not one all over the world as opposed to the horrible reality I just outlined that we see in the city and around the country when people don't have that supervision and support. And importantly, in an overdose prevention center, it's possible to get to the pathway to treatment. So two locations in Upper Manhattan, co-located with centers that for a long time have been serving the community for decades, have been serving their communities in a number of ways, providing health support for people in need, including uh, syringe exchange. Mayor de Blasio, State Senator Robert Jackson of Washington Heights, welcomed the two clinics, both located in Upper Manhattan, and told the story of how an overdose touched his own family. I grew up in New York City. My younger sister overdosed on heroin in the 70s. So no one can tell me about the personal tragedies because I've experienced that with my mother, my father, my sisters and brothers and understanding that these individuals, they need help. And who are they? They are your brothers and your sisters and your cousins and your niece and your nephews and your mother and your father and close friends of yours. And that's what this is about. So let me just thank you and your team for bringing us together to support this 110%. And President Donald Trump tested positive for the coronavirus days before he shared the debate stage with then-Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden in September 2020. That's according to his former chief of staff and two others familiar with the former president's test. Trump's positive test for the virus was on September 26, 2020, according to an account by former White House chief of staff Mark Meadows in a new book obtained by The Guardian newspaper. The Meadows account of the positive result was confirmed today by two people who requested anonymity. Today, White House COVID advisor Anthony Fauci denied he knew Trump had the disease before the debate. Well, I certainly was not aware of his test positivity or negativity. And do you think he put President Biden? I'm not going to specifically talk about who put who at risk, but I would say, as I've said, not only for an individual, but for everybody, that if you test positive, you should be quarantining yourself. And the anti-Trump Lincoln Project was quick to publish one of their uh, pithy videos about the matter based on the hit play, Evita. Don't cry for me, White House staffers. The truth is I will infect you. All through my tweeting, my mad existence, I broke my promise, won't keep my distance. And that was released today on Twitter by the Lincoln Project.
And that's some of the news for Wednesday, December 1st, 2021. The news is produced Linda Perry, our engineers, Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>